You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. It is Thursday, April 8th. It is our first show of the regular season. We did a show just before opening day last week, and a lot has happened. It's been mostly pretty fun. Obviously, the Nationals got their season off to a delayed start. But if you think about all that's happened over the first week, there's just more than we could possibly get to. Shohei Otani looked amazing. Fernando Tatis got hurt. Out of nowhere names like Akil Badu and Yermin Mercedes. In a couple hours, the Blue Jays are going to play a regular season game in Dunedin. Ryan McMahon hit three homers for the Rockies the other night, and they lost. Jamison Tyon is back, and he looked pretty good for the Yankees the other night. There has been so much that has happened, and Matt and I are excited to get to it. We are also going to be joined in a little bit by our colleague David Adler, who will point out some of the more interesting StatCast stats of the early season. But I want to talk about, the reason why I want to start, is we're only about 4% of the way through the season. But playoff odds have already changed meaningfully because these games matter, even though there's not that many of them. There's still wins and losses. Oakland just started off one in six uh, in the East divisions, just as you would have predicted. The Orioles and Phillies are, for the moment, atop the East. So it's early. Obviously, much can change. But I do want to go through some of the the Fangraphs playoff odds and how they've changed just since opening day, because there's a couple of big changes here. Some of them I'm really concerned about, and maybe some of the other ones not so much. So Let's talk about the teams that have improved their odds, and uh, we can also look back on how Matt and I projected these teams and make ourselves look good and ignore the parts where we looked bad. There is a three-way tie atop the list of teams who have improved their outlooks since the start of the season. The Astros, the Reds, and the Angels. They have all improved their odds by 17%. We're going to skip the Reds for now because we're going to get into them in a minute. 17 percentage Um, points. Yes, so they were set for the Astros. It was 70% playoff odds to start the season. Now it's 87%. I'm pretty pleased with myself. I picked the Astros to win the division. The Angels have gone up from, you know, just under 40% to 56%. So you're on that 17%. The Phillies are up. The Twins are up. Matt, did you pick the Astros? I can't remember. I know I did, but the West was kind of a mess. I picked the Angels. Okay. Um, They're up too. So that works. Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually feeling pretty good at feeling pretty good about this. So because I picked the Angels and I also picked the Reds. So I'm on, <laughs> one weekend, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Well, we'll get to the Reds in a second. I want to start with the Astros um, because I had like briefly talked myself into them because I didn't love anybody else in the West. And then I was like really into Framber Valdez kind of being a big deal. And I thought the, uh, the offense would be pretty good. And then, of course, Valdez broke his finger and Forrest Whitley blew out his elbow. And all of a sudden, the pitching depth, which didn't look good, looked worse. And the one thing I was like pretty confident in is that the offense would look really good. And it has looked really good. I mean, I mean, look at Alex Bregman, right? He's got an OPS of over 1,200. You know, Chaz McCormick is hitting a little bit. Michael Brantley is hitting. Like, I'm in on this offense. And the pitching's been like pretty decent. I think Jose Urquidy is kind of a star waiting to break out, but I'm, I'm feeling good. Well, let me back that up for a second. Let me ask you a question. How much of their start was they're good. And how much of it was that Oakland looked like they forgot how to play baseball. <laughs> um, it's a little hard to know, but I, my big question for them 
was uh, Jordan Alvarez. Was like kind of like, is he going to come back and look like the guy from two years ago? Because he, when he won Rookie of the Year and had one of the best rookie seasons at the plate, you know, basically ever. Or is it, you know, he didn't play last year because of a knee injury. Was it, it's, a, it's a knee injury, right? Um, uh, double. He had double knee surgery. Uh, Twenty three years old. <laughs> exactly. So it's one of those things. Where like, where, where is this going? And so far, so good. So that's to me that really changes um, their their outlook. Um, and then, I mean, I Zach Greinke continues to just, I mean, it's, I kind of keep it every year. I keep expecting, okay, how's he going to do this? Keep doing this. You know, he throws 88 miles an hour. Right. And it's like, he keeps doing, he's already had two quality starts to begin the season. He's looked very sharp. He's not, he doesn't strike anyone out. He's striking out less than six batters per nine innings. So a very like 1980s uh, pitching line, but <laughs> he, he figures it out. So I think, you know, for me, Alvarez changes the outlook and just like the way that like, Eloy Jimenez changes my White Sox outlook and knocks his injury knocks them down a peg for me. Like seeing the good Jordan Alvarez like raises my outlook for the, for the Astros. Yeah, Lance McCullers by the way looked looked really good too, and they signed him to an extension. The one thing I'm out on so far as the Astros go is um, them complaining about being booed. Like, like, come on. I know Dusty wasn't there. Like, it has nothing to do with him. That's fine. But fans didn't get their chance last year. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for baseball to have something of a villain. And while I want to be clear, I do not condone throwing things on the field like ever. That's never okay. The, the inflatable trash can was like a little bit funny. Like I laughed a little because, you know, it, it's hilarious. And now when you look at the AL West, you know, at the bottom of our of our postseason odds changers here, you have the A's who were at 33% before. They're now at 11% because they started off 0-6 and almost were 0-7 yesterday. It took like a late inning comeback um, to beat the Dodgers. And when I, I projected them third and A's fans were mad and like, I totally understood why, because like every year we project them third and every year they win, you know, at a 97 win pace. And I'm not saying like I'm out on them or anything yet this year, um, but there is a lot to be concerned about. And the, the you know offense looks brutally bad. <laughs> like Matt Chapman hasn't hit at all. Andrus looks terrible. You know, like who is their catcher? Aramis Garcia. I don't know. I'm I'm extremely I'm going to put this in the real category. I'm not worried about the Braves bad start. I'm very worried about this bad start. I will offer a slight piece of good news for the A's who did come back against the Dodgers last night and need to, to avoid the the 0-7 start. But that is significant because while three teams in history have started 0-6 and made the playoffs, the 2011 Rays, the 1995 Reds, and the 1974 Pirates, no team has ever started 0-7 and made the playoffs. So I'm telling you, there's a chance. So the A's started off with Oakland. They're playing the Dodgers right now. Excuse me, start off with Houston. They're playing the Dodgers right now. And then they get to go to Houston. And I think part of this is just because of their start. But I wonder if they're um, digging themselves a little bit too much of a hole. The other teams who have lost at least 10 percentage points worth of playoff odds are the Braves, who you know got off to a really bad start. I wouldn't I wouldn't normally be worried about that, but now there's some news that Mike Soroka has some shoulder discomfort. So that's concerning. But also, I think Ronald Acuna is going to hit 70 home runs this year because that guy looks absolutely locked in. Uh, And the Rays, who have gotten off to a little bit of a tough start. I'm not that worried about them yet. But I just I think it's important to make the point that it's like I know it's early. I know it's April 8th. I know a lot of teams haven't even played a home game yet. But you also, you know, these wins count. They did more losses count. They don't count more or less than they do later on. And um, it's already worth looking into. All right, we're going to look into our three batter minimum, three important topics. You'll notice I skipped the Reds up ahead um, because I wanted to like actually talk about the Reds. The Reds are five and one, 
and they are pounding the baseball, right? Like last year, we talked about this, I think, on our season preview. The Reds last year had a 212 batting average, which was the second lowest in the history of modern baseball. And that was fueled in some sense by a 245 batting average on balls in play, also the second lowest. And how did the Reds react to that? By doing almost nothing. They kind of brought back like the exact same offense, like, okay, Freddie Galvis is gone. Um, they signed a couple of guys to minor league deals, but they just sort of banked on the fact that it couldn't possibly repeat itself, which I thought was kind of fair, actually. Like some of these guys couldn't possibly do this again. The Reds have scored 57 runs in their first six games. And uh, this was tweeted by the uh, Stathead Baseball Reference Service. 57 runs in their first six games, tied for the sixth most by any team since 1901. And that is a pretty hilarious deal. They were awful last year. And I don't, I they played the Pirates, right? I get it. But like, I'm in, like you and I were both pretty, you know, optimistic about the Reds. I picked them second ahead of the Cardinals. You picked them first. <laughs> well, you know, now that you're patting me on the back, I can pat myself <laughs> on the back. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> I mean, part of it was just like, I think that that, 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 that division is kind of a muddled mess and I saw some bounce back. And I think that people were just like a little like too down on them just because of some of like there was a couple moves they made, like basically sort of giving away uh, d- salary dumping. Yeah, Iglesias, uh, Iglesias to the Bradley. Angels was pretty was 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 rough. But that you know, like I still thought the the lineup was better than it looked. And I mean, how how do you feel if you're the Indians right now, looking what Tyler Naquin's doing? <laughs> I know why can't why can't Cleveland get an outfielder who can hit like that? I I saw uh, an article at ESPN that Jesse Rogers had done, and he pulled 28 different front office executives, um, and it was you know mostly about who. who who will surprise, who will be good and bad, all that kind of stuff. And the number one team who will be the bad surprise based on these executives were the, was the Reds. You know, they got more votes than anybody else. And I think that's just a reaction to, like you said, they're kind of boring offseason. You know, Iglesias was gone. Trevor Bauer left. Dee Sclavani's gone. Archie Bradley's gone. And they signed, you know, Sean Doolittle, traded for Jeff Hoffman. Like, it wasn't exciting. And yet I, I kind of look at this. Reds team like we thought the offense would bounce back certainly certainly and it has to start um but I think they're still underrated as like a pitching factory you know like they do such a good job of finding guys and improving them I mean Sean Doolittle did we kind of think he was cooked last year because if you look at his velocity year over year every year with the Nationals he was like 93 94 95 last year it was 90.7 and he'd lost some of that trademark rise that made his you know four seamer one of the most dominant pitches in baseball this year it's back up to 93.4 like if they have the good version of sean doolittle in that bullpen that's really really good and then of course as you mentioned uh, tyler naquin and um i i need to take a brief break here to, to point out something that made me laugh very hard about tyler naquin so the other day uh he hit two home runs right and one was an absolute bomb that left the stadium and they beat the, I think it was the Pirates that day by, you know, 12 runs or whatever. So he crushes two homers and I'm walking my daughter to school the next morning and I've got a, a you know, headset in one ear and I'm listening to MLB Network Radio and they play audio of one of his best moments. Do you know what the audio clip was of? Was it of one of the two home runs? No, it was of him going opposite field to beat the shift when they were up 12 runs. And I wanted to just throw my headset into the river because what are we doing here? What, what's happening here? Come on. Um, he has a 92% hard hit rate. I don't think that's sustainable. Probably not. <laughs> it's probably not. But listen, uh, the major league average is about 36%. Last year for Cleveland, even though he didn't hit well, he hit 218, 248 on base, 52% hard hit rate. I know he's always been like a strong armed outfielder with big platoon splits. And I don't think he's like the guy, but for the Reds to pick him up 
um, for basically nothing. I think it was just a minor league deal. That's pretty good. And Nicholas Castellanos has five barrels and eight strikeouts. Um, that's probably not going to sustain. But listen, we saw what he did with the Cubs two years ago. Like I, he he was one of those guys last year. I can never really explain why he was so unimpressive. Like the, nothing stood out to me other than, hey, 2020 is a weird garbage season. <laughs> I'm in. I think I'm in. He's 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 a good hitter. He's had I mean he has had multiple years in his career. I'm looking at his baseball savant page right now where he was top like 10% in expected weight on base in full seasons. So like, you know, I'm not sure he's one of the 10 best hitters in the league, but he might be one of the top like 20 or 25 best hitters in the league. Like the guy can hit. Yeah, he can hit. What's funny is um the two guys who aren't hitting, you know, Joey Votto's done absolutely nothing so far. 18 OPS plus. And we talked a lot about whether Eugenio Suarez could cover shortstop defensively, and that's been kind of up and down, but it won't matter if he's not hitting, and he is not hitting. You know, like I, I still wonder if there's a point in the season where Trevor Story ends up in Cincinnati or something like that. Anyway, I'm not saying that the Reds are going to continue on this pace all season long, but I'm I'm pleased to see that both you and I were optimistic. We both liked them better than St. Louis, and look where they are. I'm going to call this a win and not look back at this for the entire <laughs> <laughs> rest of the season. Um, our second topic, the Chicago White Sox. You may or may not have heard they hired a new old manager, our old friend, Tony La Russa. It's been interesting. Um, I want to, they're three and four. It hasn't gotten great. Now, a lot of this is not his fault, right? It's not his fault. Uh, Eloy Jimenez got hurt. Certainly not. You know, the fact that the defense has been generally terrible, I don't think that's his fault either. You know, like Adam Eaton's looked pretty rough out there. You know, <laughs> I don't think it was his choice to have Andrew Vaughn is basically going to be your starting left fielder, but there's been a lot of weird decisions, right? Like I'm looking at our list here. There's like, they've only played seven games. We have four different weird decisions to talk about. <laughs> like I, I know you on opening night, we were, we were both watching that game. Um, start with this one. Where, where was that for you? Yeah. So it was opening night. I was excited to watch the White Sox. I was excited to see Otani um, back in the lineup for the angels and the, the White Sox are leading three, two, heading into the bottom of the eighth inning with the top of the Angels order coming up. So it's David Fletcher, Shohei Otani, and Mike Trout. Righty, lefty, righty. And it almost – he Larusa brought in left-hander Aaron Bummer. And while I, I, I know it's easy to say, oh, he must have forgotten about the three-batter minimum rule, it almost felt like he forgot about the three-batter minimum rule because he basically guaranteed that this left-hander was going to have to face Mike Trout in a one-run game, very possibly with – you know, a runner on base because Bummer has a big platoon split in his career. He's had a, allows a 650 OPS versus righties versus 518 against lefties. Um, Fletcher has a platoon split. He's a better hitter against lefties than he is against righties. Um, and I mean, sure enough, Fletcher gets a hit. It was kind of a cheap hit. It was deflected off Bummer's glove, although it was going to be a tough play no matter what. And then um, Nick Madrigal makes an error. So it's first and second. And Mike Trout crushes a single 109 miles an hour to tie the game. And you know, also he had Liam Hendricks available in the bullpen. And if you have the best reliever in baseball, why are you not bringing him into a one-run game in the eighth inning with the top of the lineup going up that includes the best hitter in baseball? I don't really get it. I, I heard someone say this recently. I think it was on the um, the uh, a season preview podcast um, that Will Leach did with uh, Joe Sheehan and Randy Gisarelli. But someone made the point, like, it was like kind of a red flag when they signed Hendricks, almost like, okay, Tony wants his – one inning closer. He wants his like old school ninth inning safe situation only guy. And that's certainly what it looked like on opening night because like in a, if you're looking at leverage and based on the batters coming up, I want Liam Hendricks pitching that inning. Yeah. And then 
uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I would say like I agree with you, but then the next night, like he brings in Hendricks um, for a four out save, and it worked sort of like it worked in the sense that they won the game. Um, but even then, so they were up seven one on Friday, and they ended up blowing that lead. Uh, Dallas Keuchel gave up a three run homer in the fourth. And then um, he allowed two runs to reach in the fifth. And anyway, by the time we get to the eighth inning, now it's seven six. And Michael Kopech was in, and he walks Michael Trout. Michael Trout, wow! He walks <laughs> Mike Trout to lead off the inning, and Evan Marshall comes in and gets the next two. And Trout had moved up to second base, so there were two outs. And what happens? They intentionally walk Albert Pujols, putting the winning run on base, which was really interesting. Um, now he removes Marshall to bring in Liam Hendricks there, and you know it worked. Like Hendricks got the out and then gave up an Otani home run the next inning. But that was a really interesting decision. And um, Ben Clemens, our friend at Fangraphs, wrote like a whole big breakdown of this. And he basically came to the idea that intentionally walking Pujols to put the winning run on base, even though you know you get the upgrade from Marshall to Hendricks because Marshall needed to face that third batter, it cost the Sox about 3% of a win, which is like a pretty big margin. And the reason for that is even though you get a better pitcher, you hurt yourself, obviously, putting the winning run on base. And the big difference here is Albert Pujols may have the name Pujols on the back of his jersey, but he's not like capital letter Albert Pujols anymore, you know, because in that situation, uh, you you just need a hit, really. And, you know, extra base hits are good, obviously, but just getting a hit to drive the run home would be a big deal. He's not that much better at that, if at all, than Jose Iglesias at I, this point. I don't think he is better than Jose Iglesias. Yeah. If you need a base hit, like... If you need a home run, sure, I'd take Albert Pujols. If you need a base hit, I'll take Iglesias right now. Yeah, and there's no question that that there's no question in my mind, at least, that like Larusa, who managed uh, Pujols through the prime of his career. Granted, that was you know more than ten years ago. Clearly, has some reverence for him. Right, <laughs> that probably is unwarranted at this point. So it's like you you got a better pitcher because Hendricks is fantastic um, in a worse game state situation against a better hitter, and it worked. But, you know, all right, there's more. There's more. All right. On Sunday, it was a 4-4 tie in the bottom of the ninth and one on for Mike Trout. And Hendricks was warm. Matt Foster came in and he did end up striking out Mike Trout. But Matt Foster ended up giving, and we're going to get back to Matt Foster in a second. He ended up giving a walk-off home run to Jared Walsh. And here's what Tony Lerso was quoted as saying after the game. It's a tie score. The best you're going to do if you get three outs, you still got to play the 10th. And you can make the closer get six out. It just didn't make sense. And it's like, I don't think I've seen a manager use the, I'm not going to use my closer in a tie game on the road thing since, I don't know, Buck Showalter did it with Zach Britton in the wildcard <laughs> game. That's not a thing that happens anymore. The best you could do is you get to the 10th. The worst you could do, not get to the 10th <laughs> because you've lost the game. Although I do, I think it is an interesting question, and this is a bit of an aside, how much the calculus does change with the runner on second rule. We're knowing like, hey, if we do go to 10, I really want my best strikeout pitcher available to kind of keep a run off the board. This is probably a, this is a conversation for another day, I think. But like, I think it is an interesting question, broadly speaking. The quote is cringeworthy. Um, I do think it's an interesting discussion because it, it does, you know, kind of, it, it should, this should change the way you make that decision a little bit. It's That's a totally fair point, And it is irrelevant if you are not in the 10th inning in the first place. <laughs> and then finally, yesterday afternoon, they lost 8-4 to Seattle. The Mariners put up seven in the sixth inning. Um, Dallas Keuchel had been pitching okay. He allowed the first two to reach. Matt Foster comes in. And I like Matt Foster. He's been a pretty good reliever. Here's how Matt Foster's afternoon went. Single, single, strikeout, single, 
sack fly, 11 pitch walk. And here comes the mound visit. And you think, okay, his day is done. He stays in to allow a double and a single. Unless you think that we are just out here second guessing from New York. Here's the quote from Larusa after the game. And I quote, I did a really lousy job of managing that inning. There were chances to win. I pushed Foster too far. Just stupid, lousy, no excuse. And, you know, credit to him for wearing that. He's not shying away from that, certainly. Uh, What is happening here? Like, this is when we when he got hired. I think a lot of people were concerned about the way he would interact with the younger players. That has not been an issue so far, from what I can tell. Right. Like, no problems there. All good. I'm sort of surprised the bigger issue is just like bullpen management from the guy who invented the modern bullpen. And it's this has been a couple of different times now. Uh, agreed. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I was sort of, I wasn't, I was like less skeptical of him as a manager than a lot of people. Cause I was like, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, had always been a very good in-game manager, sort of the kind of guy who could see things is seemingly see things that maybe other people didn't quite see and was kind of a step ahead, but the early returns and maybe it's just, you know, maybe it really is just a little bit of rust of, <laughs> of being away from the game for 10 years. Um, and I'm going to be sort of interested to, to, uh, to see kind of how it hit, uh, how it goes out from here. He, he also had a, a, an incident on in Sunday night's game where he let Billy Hamilton hit with men on base <laughs> right. when he had like two or three good hitters on the bench. I mean, so it was just like this is there's also it's it's granted he's getting a lot more scrutiny than most managers are right now. So you could probably go through every manager this year and find some of these things, but like it's it it is uh, noteworthy. And you found something about his use of the shift, which I thought really stood out. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to position this as either being good nor bad. You know, there's lots of varying opinions on the shift. But if you look at the the percent of times that the White Sox had put the shift in play over the last four years, relatively consistent, it was always between 20 and 30% of the time. You know, like middle of the pack, not, not a lot, not great. This year, they have cut that usage by one third. They are only shifting right now uh, about 11% of the time. That can't be a coincidence, right? Uh, not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I don't think it's cause for any of the defensive issues they have had. Certainly, it wasn't the shift that caused Luis Robert to try to catch a ball with his face, as entertaining as that was. Um, and just real quick, going back to that game yesterday, I was rewatching the sixth inning again this morning, and I'm good friends with their announcer, Jason Benetti. He's wonderful. I want to know what Hawk Carlson's reaction would have been to watching that. He would have lost his mind, and it would have been fun for me, not for White Sox fans. Um, this is going to be something to keep an eye on, I think. And our our third topic here, Coors Field Home Run Derby. Yes. Listen, I know the move of the All-Star game from Georgia to Colorado comes with a whole lot of controversy, and there's been some horrendously terrible political takes, and that is an entirely different topic for another day. I support the move clearly. I'm excited for a Coors Field home run derby. I don't think I've ever wanted anything more than this. <laughs> it's not just because of the elevation. Um, I'd actually just think like uh, a July summer evening in Coors Field is maybe like the most gorgeous place you could have a home run derby, right? It's going to be beautiful. Um, but I went and I looked up some numbers here. Alan Nathan, who is uh, the baseball's foremost physicist, uh, I ran through all these numbers a couple years ago. For every 1,000 feet increase in elevation, the model would suggest uh, about 5.9 feet of extra distance, right? Well, we're not 1,000 feet. We are over 5,000 feet high. And we actually are working on some stack has park factors that are going to be similar. And you'll be able to see like, how, how many more feet in your park does the ball travel. And course field for last year said 24 feet. Now, similar to the model, maybe a little shorter. But I'm, I'm so interested both in watching, you know, I don't know, judge. Sano, Gallo, Stan, whomever, crush baseballs. 
And I'm also sort of interested in how disappointed people are going to be when they realize that no one's hitting a ball 600 feet. Like, I think that's what people think. We're going to see 618 feet. And it's like, no, no, you're not. You're not. Maybe we'll get like a 510, 15. I don't know. Um, but oh, I'm so excited about this. It's going to be great. I cannot wait. Agreed. <laughs> That's it. That's all I had to say. Um, I'm looking forward to making jokes all year about, well, actually, it'll be the Coors Field batting average on balls and play derby because that's what that field actually does. Or maybe the batting pack practice pitchers pitches won't move um, because I just like to make annoying jokes like that. Super excited about that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be joined by our friend and colleague, David Adler, who's going to run us through some interesting StatCast facts from the early part of the season. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. And welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike and Matt. As we go through the early part of the season, one thing I always like to look at would be the stack cast numbers, because I can tell you, uh, as a somewhat longtime baseball writer, writing about baseball in the first part of the season is always difficult because you still have guys hitting 600 or have ERAs north of 40. And it's tough to draw a lot of meaning from that. But the stack cast numbers are pretty cool because you don't need a whole lot of sample size to know that someone is hitting the ball harder than they ever have throwing the ball harder than they ever have. I can tell you early on in the season, the fact that Giancarlo Stanton already has the hardest hit ball of the year is pretty fun because we've tracked six regular seasons and one spring training, and he has the hardest hit ball of every single one of those things. I find that deeply entertaining. And we are joined now by our friend and colleague, David Adler, also of MLB.com. And David has dug up a couple of interesting early season stack cast facts about a few pitchers. And a few hitters. Hello, David. How have you been enjoying the start of the season so far? Oh, it's been great. A lot of, a lot of interesting things happening in baseball, you know, from DeGrom to Otani, you know, hitting bombs. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's start with Otani. I, I don't know if I've heard anything about him, but I feel like there's just no way to overhype, you know, what he's been doing. What so far about Otani has really kind of stood out uh, to you from a, a metrics point of view? Well, I mean, like you could go into the hitting and the pitching both. I mean, you know, he's already hitting homers that like only Stanton and Judge are hitting. You know, uh, his 115 mile an hour homer. But like from the pitching side, I think it's a lot more interesting right now because that was like such a huge question with him coming back from injury. You know, his velo was way down. 
uh, in his brief 2020 uh, pitching outings. Like, and, and that was so like, would he get his velo back? And he has. He you know he had 100 miles an hour nine times in his first start. Uh, but I think the really interesting thing is not just the that the velo is back on his fastball; it's that his spin rate is a lot higher than it ever was uh, in 2018 or 2020. I um, mean, just in his first game, he averaged 24.49 RPM, which is really high spin on the four seamer, and he was down at around 2100 RPM in 2018. So, uh, like going from a low spin fastball to a high spin fastball, you would think that you know his fastball has a lot more potential to be a swing and miss pitch. You know, since the high spin rate is what you know gives you the potential to have that rising fastball, that swing and miss fastball. Yeah, I'm glad you said um, potential because it's like the the high spin on a fastball is almost like your gas tank. You know, it doesn't actually lead to speed or velocity or movement, but it's, it gives you the ability to use it properly. Um, Matt, I know you've been maybe down on the two way thing for Otani, thinking maybe he's better used as a hitter. Has anything this this season so far changed your opinion on that? I mean, to be clear, I do want him to succeed. I do think it would be great <laughs> if he succeeds in both roles. Um, but even like that, the, the the game on Sunday night was like it was exciting. It was really cool. Um, but when all was said and done, he couldn't get out of the fourth inning, and or sorry, couldn't get out of the fifth inning, and it ended up being kind of like uneven in the end. Um, so now granted, I think part of that is because of like the, the win rule and Joe Madden trying to manage the win rule and he wanted to get the, get Otani the win and Otani wanted the win, which is part of the trouble. Part of like the issue with all of this always is like players care about it. And like, we always like call it the managers, like all oh, the managers got to know better. It's like, well, no, Otani cares about getting the win. Players care about who gets the win. And so like, you're trying to kind of keep that in mind as you manage, but unfortunately it ended up this like kind of, um, Almost near disaster scenario where Tony lost Tony <laughs> lost the plate and then almost like basically had his career ended trying to cover home plate on a on like a little league like throw around the bases, botched like wild pitch third strike throw to first throw home. So I mean I'm I'm excited that he that he that he did look good and I'm looking forward to Sunday. But it's still we're talking about a guy who's probably going to continue to pitch four plus innings once a week, and I'm not sure that's necessarily enough to like rearrange your roster around. That's kind of my point. Yeah, I feel like we all got so overhyped and excited that everyone looked past the um, five walks he had in four and two thirds innings, because that matters as well. David, before you were on, we were we were talking about the White Sox and some of the ups and downs of their season, but it was cool to see Michael Kopech back on the mound. And uh, you know, what did you have on him? Yeah, I mean, I've been waiting for him to get back on the mound for you know, two years now. Because uh, I remember when he was coming up, he was he was super exciting. You know, we like saw what he did in the futures game, like back in 2017, he was throwing like a hundred miles an hour and striking out Yohan Moncada and doing all this stuff. And, you know, he was so such a hyped prospect and he finally gets to the major leagues and get to see him for like, like a few starts before he gets hurt. And, you know, I mean, he looks great now. Uh, his four seam slider combo just like looks lights out. Uh, I mean, we knew he had the big fastball. It's good to see that the stuff is where it was before. Uh, like again, you know, talking about high spin fastball, you know, his four seam spins up above 2,500 RPM. And, you know, uh, we like just the early movement numbers that we have on him, you know, it's dropping on average less than 10 inches on his way to the plate. And like, that's what you see out of these guys with, with the big rising fastballs, like, you know, Aroldis Chapman or uh, James Karinchak or uh, Garrett Cole, Liam Hendricks. Like these guys are like the, the ones whose, whose fastballs have that rise and Kopex is in that category. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting when you look at the slider with the four seamer because it's like a 10 mile per hour velo differential. 
but they got the same spin and they have similar kind of not a lot of horizontal movement, but they drop about like 25 inches differently. So I think they work really well together. So you're saying that not only does Kopech throw at a billion miles an hour, but he's also got rise to it. That seems super fair. <laughs> he's a, I mean, he's a really interesting weapon for them coming out of the pen. Um, just to give an example, give an example. In 2018, he he debuted, made four starts, pitched 14 innings, and had 15 strikeouts in 14 innings, and was not very good. In four innings this year, he has eight strikeouts. He's struck out more than 50 percent of the batters he's faced so far. So he's been really dominant. And, you know, we're talking about right-handed pitchers who throw hard and are pairing it with dominating breaking balls. And Tyler Glass now is kind of also one of those guys. And I feel like I feel like people are going to look at him as a breakout guy, I guess, because he's never done it for a full season. But I sort of thought he already had that breakout. Um, what's what's been good for him for you, David? Well, I mean, the thing with him is like, you know, he's always been a two pitch pitcher with the four seamer and then the big curveball, at least since his, his breakout with the Rays, you know, like his breakout, at least as a, as a strikeout artist, you could say. Um, and, you know, it's always like, well, what's his third pitch going to be? You know, is he going to think he's going to throw this change up? Well, it doesn't really work that well. Well, he spent all of spring training, you know, in like, the offseason working on this new slider and now he's throwing it. And it seems like it, it's working well for him. It seems like it plays off his curveball really nicely. Uh, I mean, we have the early numbers on it. You know, it's basically the difference between the slider and the curveball. You know, it's a few miles an hour, you know, low to mid 80s curveball, high 80s slider, a little less spin, but also high spin. Like, you know, his power curveball is always over 3000 RPM with big vertical movement. And his slider, it, you know, is like 28 or so, 2800 so RPM in, in the early goings, a little less vertical movement. So it's just different enough from his curveball that he can use it in a different way. And if you look at like the heat maps of where he's throwing it, the slider he's using, you know, on that uh, glove side, like low outside corner to a right to like pack the corner of the strike zone, whereas his curveball he buries below the strike zone, and it's like a big chase pitch. It is deeply unfair that Glass now can get better, um, but I, I think he has. Uh, before David, before you talk about a couple of hitters that have stood out to you, I want to remind people uh, follow David at underscore d adler underscore dadler, which is one of the most unique uh, Twitter handles I think I've seen, but definitely do it not just because David puts out good stuff, but because I want you all to go look at the profile picture, the header image on his Twitter profile, because it's literally David with his laptop with baseball savant open in Egypt in front of the pyramids, which is not Photoshopped, right? Like that's a real thing you did. (laughs) It's a real thing I did. StatCast is global. (laughs) Which is uh, fantastic. All right, let's talk about a couple of hitters here. We have not released yet like all of the 2021 stack ass leaderboards we'll we'll do it next week but that doesn't mean i can't like look at a sneak peek of some stuff and when i look at the um the infield outs above average like the fielding metric leaderboard the number one guy on the list right now is gavin lux who has been playing great defense for the dodgers but he's also been hitting well and i I know david you dug up something interesting about him yeah so like you know it's kind of like you forgot how of a prospect he was just because of that weird year last year when he like couldn't crack the roster and then wasn't very good and like it's like wait this guy was like the number two prospect in baseball right before that you know and so i think it's pretty interesting how he's been really great all around so far in their early goings of the season like yeah his been he's been good defensively his hit numbers are really good uh i think the most interesting thing that i've seen is is his speed though because i guess we knew he was fast but i don't think we like knew that he has the potential to have like top tier speed if you look at his his sprint speed that we've been tracking he already has two runs at you know the elite 30 plus feet per second sprint speed mark uh which 
Uh, I didn't know that he had that in him. Like routinely, he has two infield hits at 30 plus feet per second. So it's not like that speed is, is useless. It's like turning into hits, you know, you, that's an, the difference between an out and a hit is how fast he gets down the first baseline. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the way too early, you know, sprint leaderboard, he's averaging 29.6 feet per second. So just under that elite threshold, uh, only Trey Turner right now is, is above him. You know, Trey Turner being pr- maybe the fastest person. Well, so I thought that was interesting to see from about Gavin Lux. Yeah. Just, just what the Dodgers needed, right. was a, another high quality player to play every day. Cause they're clearly low on talent. Um, I'm, I think if you were to ask me, like, what player do I just want to see healthy for an entire season just to see what would happen? I guess, okay, fine. Otani is number one on that list. Number two is Byron Buxton, who has really made this incredible progression from like, you know, he's always fast, always a great fielder. But there used to be the days where Paul Molitor would tell him to like hit the ball on the ground and run it out. And now he's like a legitimate power guy, you know, like he can slug with anybody in the game. Um, Tell me why you think this is going to keep up or why it can. I think the the first good sign is that he's already uh, set a new high for his his max exit velocity. You know he's hit, he had a hundred fourteen point one mile an hour home already this season, which is the hardest ball he's ever hit. Uh, it was you know <laughs> a really big home run. You know the only the only players who uh, have hit harder home runs this season are Nelson Cruz, his teammate Shohei uh, Otani, you know, which we talked about, and and John So you know if you're hitting home runs as hard as them, that's a, a pretty good sign. Uh, and then if you just kind of look at his his ranks across the board, uh, you know, in the early in the early season, you know, his average exit velocity, 94th percentile, his max exit velocity, 97th percentile, you know, bar- he's barreling the ball, 98th percentile, you know, his expected batting average slugging, his expected Woba, these are all like, you know, 85th percentile, 98th percentile. He's, he's just kind of hitting everything right now. But, you know, as you like to say a lot, Mike, uh, you know, hitting the ball really hard is a skill and it's a hard skill to replicate. And so if he's hitting 114 mile an hour homers, you know, harder than he's ever hit the ball before, like that's real. Yeah. I, I pick, I picked the twins to uh, win a third straight division title and like banking on him being healthy was maybe foolish on my part, but just the idea that if he is, this is like an MVP caliber season uh, is part of it. <laughs> one thing I'd like to point out about Buxton, who had one of the weirdest statistical lines ever last year and like <laughs> yes. a really short year he had you know he had 13 home runs um in just 135 plate appearances but he had only two walks and 36 strikeouts so he basically like totally sold out and was just swing for power only two walks which was alarming he already has two walks this season and just four strikeouts so again tiny sample but it is an indication of at least slightly improved control of the strike zone and uh it is uh it's exciting to see yeah and finally before we let you go david i feel like our um, our official baseball podcast license would be revoked if we didn't talk a little bit about Akil Badu, who has been the most fun story of the early season. I think if you haven't seen the video of his parents high-fiving after he had his first home run the other day, please do, because it is absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm getting the feeling you don't actually think Akil Badu is going to hit 455 for the rest of the year, though. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. <laughs> that would be pretty pretty cool. But uh, I mean, like it's it's good to see him be doing well because he's a, he's like a feel good story. But like if you look at the numbers behind his start, like there are actual good numbers. I mean, like you like you saw what he did in spring training when he like basically hit his way onto the roster. But like you say, well, spring training stats don't matter. Well, we, at least when we have the the Statcast data, more for spring training now, than, like than we did before with the expansion to more stadiums. You know, we can see, oh, you know, seventy percent of the balls he hit that were tracked were hard hit balls in spring training. 
So he was actually hitting the ball hard, just putting up a crazy spring stat line. And, you know, we can see his sprint speeds and, you know, he reached that 30 feet per second mark and he was over 29 feet per second, 28 feet per second pretty regularly. So like you see like, oh, this guy might have the potential to be kind of like a power speed type of hitter. Uh, and now he's carried that forward into the regular season. You know, he's got a good hard hit rate. You know, he's hitting line drives. Uh, you know, he, he's he's reached that 30 feet per second mark in the real game and 29 feet per second, too. Uh, so you look at his contact quality, it, it continues to be good. He's not just like lucking into a couple of homers. And, and I also think it's cool to see that he, he's really using it. He's hitting the ball up the middle, hitting the ball to the opposite field. Both of his homers, I think, are, are to the opposite field. So if he, you know, turns on a few, you know, he could, he could be like a real hitter. And I got to give the, the Tigers a ton of credit for, so he was taken in the rule five draft, right? So people who are unfamiliar with the rule five draft, basically it's for the long story short, it's basically guys who've been in the organization for a long time who are not on the 40 man roster. You can sort of, you go through and you could take guys from other teams. And the deal is you have to, you have to keep them on your roster for the entire season, your 25 man roster for the entire season or offer them back. Right, so there was no minor league season last year, so there was no way for Badu to play. The Tigers are clearly rebuilding. The last time Badu played was in the Florida State League, which is I don't even know what it's called now. It was renamed. You know, he hit two fourteen in two thousand nineteen in the Florida State League. This is a guy that would never, under normal circumstances, get taken in the Rule Five Draft. He's twenty two years old. He's never played above a ball. The Tigers are rebuilding. They need talent, especially talent on offense, wherever they can find it. They've got some good pitching, so it's like you know what. What do we have to lose? We like they obviously like this guy's scouting report when they, you know, out of the draft. He was a high school draft pick in 2016, second round pick at the Twins. Like, what do we have to lose by giving him a shot? And again, I don't think he's necessarily going to hit, you know, 455 all year, but like, good for them. And, you know, maybe they, maybe they found a, you know, found a, a gem here. Yeah, what I said all winter, I thought that the Tigers would be interesting and like maybe not successful, but a lot of fun to watch. I did not expect it to be because of Akil Badu, you know, so good on the Tigers for unearthing uh, potentially another gem here. So, um, David, thanks for joining us. I, this is the kind of stuff that's meaning, meaningful and interesting pretty early, and I know you will be keeping close track of it all. So make sure to follow David at underscore Dadler, D-Adler on Twitter, which I love saying. It's just it's so much fun to say underscore Dadler. And Matt and I will be right back to finish off the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Go 
Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, our thanks to David Adler. We're going to finish off as we usually do by each picking a player from the early season we should be talking about more, and each of us will have a purpose pitch. Matt, you've selected one of my longtime favorites. Um, we've I've been pretty high on this Milwaukee pitching staff, and it's not just because of Burns and Hayter and Woodruff and Williams. It's also because of your man, Freddie Peralta. Yeah, I mean, he's had a, he's had sort of a, a strange career because he broke in as a starting pitcher and then his role, he's been kind of a swingman. You know, he's, he his, in 2018, he de- debuted, he was mostly a starter, and then in 2019, he was mostly a reliever, and then last year, he was almost exclusively, exclusively a, re- a reliever. But he's got crazy uh, strikeout stuff, and he seems to keep getting better. Um, he actually pitched in relief in the opener this year. He struck out six in two innings. Then he started against the Cubs on April 6th, and he struck out eight in five innings pitched. Since he debuted in 2018, he ranks 14th in strikeout rate among pitchers with at least 150 innings pitched, ahead of Shane Bieber. Over the last two seasons, among pitchers who have thrown at least 35 innings, and I had to make the minimums low because last year was so weird, only Shane Bieber has a higher strikeout rate than Freddie Peralta. Um and what's interesting also is that he's actually he's throwing harder. You know, uh, when Peralta broke in and he was mostly a starter, he was throwing his fastball was like 91 miles an hour. Last year was 93, and on opening day, and his, in his first start, it was 94 miles an hour. So he's throwing harder. He relies heavily on the fastball, um, as does his teammate uh, Brandon Woodruff, which is kind of interesting. Where like you're seeing these Brewers pitchers emerge. It's kind of like zagging where everyone else is throwing their breaking stuff more. They've got two guys who are kind of like emerging into this next level of pitchers relying heavily on the fastball. Um, but just a really interesting pitcher. And he's, you know, he's, he's still pretty young, you know, he's, he's uh, it's his age 25 season and um, a lot of fun to watch. So um, when I think of like why the Brewers could win that division, you know, he's on the short list of reasons. Yeah. I remember him from his debut a couple of years ago where he showed up in Coors field and threw like 90% fastballs and looked really good. And what we've learned since then is that he is one of the truly elite guys in baseball at extension. And what that means is he gets further off the mound or closer to the plate. If you prefer than pretty much anybody except for Tyler Glasnow. And not only has he added velocity, he's added an interesting new breaking ball. And I think he's, I agree with you. He's wonderful. And he's what the fifth or sixth best pitcher the Brewers have like the Brewers pitching is going to be so good. I also chose a pitcher, but mine is very different. You know, early in the season, it's always hard to know, like, uh, what should I put into, like, one or two good outings, right? But there has not been a pitcher in the early going who has impressed me more than Julian Merriweather, reliever of the Blue Jays. This is a guy who feels like 10 years ago now at this point, when the Blue Jays traded Josh Donaldson, they got an injured player to be named later, Julian Merriweather from Cleveland. And he has pitched uh, 19 pro innings over the last three seasons. Now he's at the alternate site. You know, last year, we don't know how to account for that. But the guy hasn't really pitched much. Wasn't even that impressive in the majors for the Blue Jays last year. And on opening day, he comes in in a safe situation at Yankee Stadium, struck out the side on 11 pitches. Two days later, he struck out two more Yankees on 11 more pitches. And he looked unbelievable doing it. Throwing 99, dotting the corner with changeups. I actually looked this up when I wrote about this the other day. He's got a 19 mile an hour difference between his fastball and his changeup. And if you look at the uh, the pitch tracking era, that is almost unprecedented for a guy who throws as hard as he does. Softer tossers have done this too. But this guy looked like legit. And for a Blue Jays team that lost Kirby Yates, they really needed a boost in the bullpen. I am super in on Julian Merriweather. I don't know if you actually watched any of his, his pitches, but um, the, <laughs> the appearance he had against Aaron Hicks, where it was like fastball called strike, changeup called strike, Changeup called strike three was just dominant. Hicks had no idea what to do. 
And I mean, relievers are fun like that because it's like, you know, we saw, we've seen it in the past, like with Devin Williams last year, where they can go from basically no names to, to like, oh, best reliever in the game in like the span of a few outings. And you're, I'm, I'm like kind of always on the lookout for those guys. Um, and he seems like one of the candidates to be that guy this year because you can't fake the stuff that he showed. Um, you know, obviously, like, you know, there's a high like burnout rate amongst relievers who, who who throw hard and get used like aggressively by their managers. So often that that dominance doesn't necessarily last that long. But as long as the dom- dominance lasts, it is fun to watch. We are going to end with our purpose pitch where Matt and I each pick something to rant about. I've been I've been sitting on this one for a couple of weeks because we've had a different format leading up to the season. Um, I want to talk about this is not, I promise, this is not going to be a whole thing about whether you should or shouldn't ban the shift. But that's where I have to start here. That topic keeps coming up. And I saw one interesting pushback to it on Twitter that reminded me that a, a prominent uh, baseball journalist had said to me last year, and I just disagree with it so heavily. And the, the reason, one of the reasons they have for banning the infield shift is that it's unfair to left-handed hitters, which is true. It's, you know, it hurts lefties more than it hurts righties. Like I could not possibly argue that. But to that, I say, who cares? Like, why, why do we care about that? Baseball has never been a sport where, you know, it should be fair to one handedness or the other. If you're a lefty, you don't get to catch. You don't get to play most of the infield. Uh, if you're a left-handed pitcher, you get to hold runners on more easily. You know, if you are a, a right-handed batter, um, or, or excuse me, if you're a left-handed batter, you get a platoon advantage more of the time. Look at all the other sports, individual sports, handedness. Like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, lefty golfers, lefty tennis players, whatever. You can be a lefty quarterback. Nobody cares what hand initial wide receiver is. Hockey, it matters like a little bit in that you don't want like entirely right-handed defensemen. You want to have one or two. Baseball has always been a sport where what hand you, you play with matters a lot. And that's one of the things I love about it. Like, I think that's cool. And so if it's unfair to lefties that the shift is there, so what? I don't care about that. <laughs> well, I will say also, as your point about the left-handed catchers, um, uh, Anthony Kasterman did a piece about this recently where he talked to Benny DiStefano, who was the last lefty catcher in the major leagues, um, which was like in 1991 playing for the Pirates. Um, but he also spoke to our old friend Jerry Weinstein, who is the guru of catching instruction, who co- coached in the Rockies system, who also managed Team Israel, I think, in the World Baseball Classic. Um, and Jerry Weinstein basically said, like, there's actually no good reason why lefties can't catch. It's just like one of those things that no one is trained to be. No lefties um, are catchers um but he's like i see no reason why lefty couldn't catch and he gave like his like he broke it down you should go find the peach piece i'm sure if you went and googled it last left-handed catcher benny de stefano anthony castrovince mlb.com you'd find it um where jerry weinstein kind of breaks it down but i thought that was really interesting that he sort of basically said like no there's there's no good reason for it i'm in man let's do it <laughs> my closing rant i will preface this by saying that i've spent more time following Mets Twitter than I would care to admit over the last 15 or however many years, 14 years. (laughs) (laughs) And I've thought this before, but now I have an outlet to sort of share it. Mets Twitter, you need to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. (laughs) I mean, it it, it can be a wonderful place. There's a lot of really funny people on it, a lot of really smart people on it, very clever. Um, I get it. But people freaking out about the lineups like three days into the season, um, many of this, many of which are like I think are kind of defensible. Like people are freaking out about Jonathan Villar VR betting ahead of Jeff McNeil in the lineup. The problem with the Mets is that they are a really left-handed hitting team, and it makes lineup construction tough. So Luis Rojas wants to split up his lefties in the lineup as best as he can. 
so that it makes it harder for teams to match up lefties late in the game. You can maybe disagree with it, but it at least is a defensible position. There is a, a there is a reasonable argument to be made about splitting up your lefties that having that maybe giving you know McNeil one fewer at bat is 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 less important than being able to maybe get him a, a free shot against a middling right-handed reliever later in the game that he wouldn't otherwise get if you had him stacked right behind Dominic Smith. Jonathan Villar is a switch hitter for those unfamiliar. So it's not that crazy. And then people are also freaking out about Kevin Pillar hitting leadoff on in their first game. Correctly. Uh, <laughs> I guess. But similarly, the Mets have a really lefty lineup and you have Pillar on your roster who has raked against lefties the last two years and the opposing pitcher was a left-handed pitcher. Personally, Opening day, because it was their first game, I would have just put like the best names in my lineup in the lineup because it's like it's opening day. But like I can't get worked up about this. I got worked up about it when he didn't pinch it for Pilar when <laughs> right. they brought in a right-handed pitcher <laughs> with the bases loaded. Rojas deserved to get some criticism for that. But man, with the lineups, it's you know, we're three games into the season. Take a breath. Uh mostly agree with you about the lineups. Um Jonathan VR starting at third base today in the game that starts in about an hour. Do you know when the last time VR actually played third base was? Um, it's, it's, it's been a few years, 2016. I'm just curious. I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, JD Davis is no great shakes at third base either. And I think he, what he got hit with a pitch the other day. So maybe he's exactly. Sore. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe Guillerme. I guess it doesn't matter. Well, again, they, 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 Guillerme is another left-hand hitter. So they're thinking they want to, they want to balance a little bit. Yeah, and, fair. um, you know, so it's, and they also, I think the thing is they clearly don't really trust JD Davis as, as a third baseman. Um, they haven't really given him a vote of confidence there. So I think if VR can play third credibly, he's probably going to be better than Davis is. Um, and, um, he might give them a, a different a different um, dimension. So, I mean, with, with with Davis hurt, I can see the the reasoning for doing it this this early in the season. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I I mostly agree with you. I don't fully agree with you, except to point out that um, batting average or batting lineups almost never matter as much as people want them to do. Like one percent of the air spent on lineup order is really worthwhile because it just doesn't matter uh, except when you put Kevin Pollard lead off because that's when it definitely matters. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. <laughs>